deals and money. We are constantly seeking deals and money as real estate investors. And I bet you're having a challenge right now, especially with deals, if you're like most real estate investors, because it's tough to find deals right now. But here's the thing. There's a competitive advantage out there that when implemented, it will help you accomplish your objective of getting more deals and or getting more investors. And that is having a great follow-up system. Having a great follow-up is one of the keys to success in real estate. And follow-up boss is the leading CRM for real estate. This is the system you need in place so you can reach out to owners and brokers directly for deals, or you can follow up with your investors. And you do it all in one spot. The CRM makes it 10 times faster to call and text owners, then integrates those into a software so nothing slips through the cracks. The follow-up boss conversion system and powerful management tools help align your methods and drive growth that otherwise it could have been missed and probably would have been missed. Go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever to get a system in place. And if you need help, they got you covered. Followup Boss offers experts seven days a week. You can pick up the phone and speak to an actual human being anytime during business hours. Visit followupboss.com forward slash best ever to check out how much time you could save by streamlining your follow-up process. Best ever listeners, they're treating you extra special. You get an extended 30-day free trial, twice the length of the normal trial. For a limited time, go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever and perfect your follow-up. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. You want to look for people that can have experience in weathering that emotionally, right? That they can stay in the fight when things get tough and the phone calls get really tough and the conversations get tough, but also that they have some deep pockets. They can write a check to help solve problems. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, Brian Miller. Brian is joining us from Rancho Mission Viejo, California. He is the co-owner of Capital Stack Investments, which curates development projects in the LA area. Brian is a GP on almost 100 units and an LP in over 15 different deals. He also owns a TV, commercial, and film composition company that works with all the large studios in Hollywood. Brian, thank you so much for joining us, and how are you today? I'm doing great. Nice to be here. Uh, It's our pleasure to have you. Brian, before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Sure. So my background is I've been a composer and still am a composer, writing music for film and TV projects. Out of that, I knew I had to build my own retirement plan. There was nobody funding the 401k except for myself. So out of that, I started investing in real estate, buying real estate and getting into it as a long-term strategy just to have income in the later years. And then it turned out so well that it's become its own business to run. So I've been involved with lots of different things from owning a single family portfolio, investing in lots of syndications, doing flips with partners, and now doing a lot of development deals where it's basically like a build to rent. So how do you acquire assets in this market under value? Well, if you build those assets, you can acquire for a six cap in a market where you could sell for a four cap. So that spread is your profit. Explain that to me, please. Sure. So basically, it's hard to go to the market and find a bargain now, right? Everybody wants premium prices in LA. There's buildings selling in the three caps and maybe even some below that there are rumors of, right? 
So it's really hard to make money in the short term on those deals. People buy those deals. It's a great store of value. They know Los Angeles is a great market. It's going to appreciate over time. So people park money there. They make a little bit of cash flow, but not that much. But let's say a $10 million building. If you can build that building all in for 8 million bucks, you just made $2 million because now you have a $10 million asset, but it cost you 8 million. But what it does cost you is maybe a year or two of tying up your capital until you can complete that building and create a $10 million building for $8 million. So that's how you build your profit. And actually there's a lot of downside protection in that. Because if you went and bought the $10 million building that was just stabilized and the market drops 20%, now you have an $8 million building, you just lost 2 million bucks. But if you're building it during that time and the market corrects and it comes down to $8 million, you just build an $8 million asset that's worth 8 million. So there's more downside protection in that than if you just go in the market and really don't have any upside. And you're just hoping that the market is stable and that you can push rents over time. So this is a build to suit type deal, right? Yes. Either build to sell or build to rent. Got it. Okay. So you find the land and then you find the potential tenant or the other way around? Everything would come from finding the property that you can build on first, then actually building it and learned a lot in that whole process. So the whole plan is be as simple as you can possibly do. We want to go into a buy right situation, which is you have the legal right to build four units or five units on that property, rather than the typical development play, which is an entitlement play, which might say, hey, I hope I can build 30 units here. And I'm going to take the next three years lobbying the city to get permission to do that. The main goal is to go as simple as possible and just go at an asset where you know you have the right to build that. So you don't have to go through that normal entitlement process. So you reduce a lot of the risk of normal development. And Brian, what's a typical tenant? Is it retail, office, industrial? Oh, these would be small multifamilies. Got so, it. All, okay, interesting. Yeah. So LA has a huge supply demand imbalance. There's very little new stock. There's a lot of old stock, but because we have rent control, it's funny. This is like the unintended consequences. Like a politician, like if we have rent control, we're going to do good things for a renter. But let's say you have a million units of rental units. Well, 80% of those people are never going to move because they have under market value rents. So they don't want to move to market value rents. So they stay there. So instead of a million units, now you just cut out 80% of the market. Now you only have a sliver of the availability, right? A sliver of the supply. So you really restrict supply in that scenario. When you have restricted supply, what happens? Prices go up. Interesting. And right now, I'm assuming you can build for a lot cheaper than you can buy. Typically, yes. A building would cost you 10 million, but you can build it for eight. So yes, there is a spread there. And what's the typical return on investment on a deal like this? It really depends. There's a lot of factors. I tend to opt for going for as simple as possible, building duplexes, building wood frame construction. All those things are simpler, faster, easier to build. Your more elaborate construction, it's a higher degree and higher bar of inspections, a higher degree of scrutiny by the city more inspections, more complicated fire sprinklers, all of it's more complicated. So the simpler is better, but I would say it depends on how the deal performs. But a typical deal would be 15 to 25%. There's other partners that I deal with, they make 33% on a project level. That's not net to LPs, but on a project level, they're averaging out that as a typical return. And Brian, you're a lifelong composer. How did you get into development? Well, when I was five years old, I got into development. So my dad was a school teacher and every summer we built a house. So from June, July, August, I was out swinging hammered, sweeping floors, 
driving nails and basically doing that. So every summer we built a single family house and my dad would make almost as much from that one spec house as he did from his teaching salary. So kind of got the vision of, hey, you build it. And if you create value, wonderful thing, you've just figured out a great way to create wealth. The good old days when you could build a house in one summer. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) No supply chain issues. Exactly. Very cool. So that was kind of implanted in the back of your mind that no matter what you do, there's a way that you can supplement your income. Sure. For me, it was really, how do I take capital from this business that's doing really well and make sure that it keeps repeating, right? You don't want to be like the typical guy in the music business, blowing through large amounts of cash and then broke in just a few years. I was like, how do you take that and develop that? So that was part of that long-term strategy of let's take the good years and then build it and put it into assets that are going to continue to produce revenue for forever until you sell that asset. And Brian, you've got a 37 unit subdivision in LA. Can you walk us through that deal? Sure. It was actually kind of three different parcels that we put together. Those are called small lot ordinances. People don't typically build condos in LA because there's a lot of legal risk because it's real easy to do a class action against the condo builder. If there's any problem in the first 10 years, you can get sued. So people went away from that. So small lot is actually their single family houses, but they look like townhouses because they look like they're adjoined and almost like a row house, but they're actually separate. There's actually six inches of air in between, even though you can't see the air, but that you actually have separate walls. So that makes those single family houses. And again, people in LA are paying 3,500, four grand, $4,500 a month in rent. So when you give them the option to purchase that, when interest rates were in in a really good state, could purchase about that same payment. So it made a lot of sense for millennials to go and buy that asset versus continue to rent. So you took three parcels and developed 37 units. Are there any amenities or do you not have to offer anything? There's really no really amenities. They're just desperate for housing. The amenities, we rooftop deck, garages. But again, we're talking about a millennial buyer. They don't want a yard. They don't want a maintenance. The rooftop deck is a great place to go hang out, have friends over, get some fresh air in the evening, and it's enough. But there's no swimming pools or massive infrastructure plays like that. What's your role amongst your team? Well, a little bit changed over time. So I helped with capital raising, advising the developer. I've stepped in and helped with a lot of project management over the last year and a half, kind of driving the project to the finish line. And how do you find time to compose music? That's a good question. It definitely takes some um, diligence about trying to do time blocking. And during this time, I'm going to push on these things, try to be super organized, try to use Google Sheets so people can reply without having to have a lengthy phone call, trying to streamline that and try to get really efficient in the writing too process of being really disciplined, get your three or four hours of uninterrupted time, bust it, and then uh, jump onto other things and then come back to that. Brian, you're an LP on over 15 deals mobile home parks, retail, multifamily, self-storage, as well as LP on development deals. How do you look at where to invest your LP funds into? Great question. I guess the easiest answer is you look very carefully about where you want to do that. As I've done this for a while, I've had partners who have just blown it out of the building. I've invested 50 grand and get back 200 grand two and a half years later. Those are kind of like the home runs. And then there's other big things that have performed at two or three or 8%, right? So LPs all perform differently. But if I look about now as how I evaluate those, I want to look for people that have been in the business a long time. I want to look for long track records. I want to look for if it's possible that they were in business before the 2008 downturn, that's a plus because you see how people handle stress and uncertainty. 
It's interesting. People like LPs that you turn your money over to, it's very interesting. Some personalities, when they're cornered, are fighters and they're very creative and they're scrappy and they'll figure out, well, if I do this and I switch that and I leverage this and I give up this in order to gain that, I'll be able to live and play another day. There's other guys who basically go in the fetal position, suck their thumb, and they basically get really stuck. So you don't really know until the tough times come what your partner's going to really do. And that's the tough thing. So the way you look around that and mitigate that is you look for long track records. You look for long history. You want to find investors that have been with them for five, seven, 10, 15 years. Because even if a person has success over a five-year period, it doesn't guarantee that they're going to be successful over the next five. It depends what they do, who else was on the team when they were successful. Did they lose any key members? Are they growing too quickly? There's still things, but that long track record of really doing what they say they're going to do and being willing to pony up when the times are tough. Like I I was just in a multifamily deal in Georgia. It didn't perform super well. It had some problems. The principal on that deal lent the project a million bucks to keep it going. And he didn't charge interest on it. So if you don't have a partner that has some deep pockets, that has the ability to weather some storms, when the storms do come, which they will come, then it's really a tough position. So you want to look for people that can have experience in weathering that emotionally, right? That they can stay in the fight when things get tough and the phone calls get really tough and the conversations get tough, but also that they have some deep pockets. They can write a check to help solve problems. Great advice on how to evaluate GPs on your deals. If you have a GP that has not been in business before 2008, what's a good way to stress test them? Because they've only seen positive economies and upticks and everything's been great. Sure. How do you stress test somebody like that? It's really a tough question. I don't know that you can, because the thing is, I think we can get freaked out. We've had such tailwinds, right? Since 2010, like even any, if you bought real estate between 2010 and 2020 and you lost money, something is horribly, horribly wrong, right? Because the market has been helping you. Cap rates have been compressing. Interest rates have been coming down through that period. There's been so many positive things that a lot of people perform super well, may not be a reflection of their skills. The market might've helped them out and take it wherever you get it. But Again, it's tough to look at and say, how is that person going to perform? So I don't know exactly how to answer that question other than you start to look for other things. Have they been in other businesses? Were they in a different business that happened in 2008? Do they have any bankruptcies? Do they have divorces? Do they have a lot of litigation in their background between partnerships, right? Any of those things that come up, I found that history tends to repeat itself. So if a person has problems or difficulty, get along with others or involved with multiple lawsuits that probably means that's going to happen again in the future. So those should be all serious red flags that you pay attention to. Interesting. I love that. Very cool. So Brian, out of all the LP deals that you've done, what has the best returns consistently? Mobile home, retail, multifamily, self-storage, development. How about the top two in order? Ooh, that's a great question. And I think a lot of this is operator dependent, not so much asset class dependent because I've done some great deals in multifamily where we did serious value add on 188 units and it turned out great. So some of those have been my outliers on best performance. I've had some development deals where 37% IRR, those are great. So probably those are the top two, but again, asset class does not equate success. People can get their self-storage buildings repossessed and taken back. And it's happened to friends of mine 
who just had really unfortunate circumstances like a brand new class A facility being built right across the street and they had deeper pockets. And so they were able to just lower rents and all the renters from their facility went next door. And overnight you go from 80% occupancy, not overnight, but a couple months, you can go down to 50% and 40%. Now you can't debt service, right? So even a super stable, hey, self-storage is great. You can't lose money in self-storage. Yes, you can. So all those are so operator and environmental things go into that. So I just warn your listeners to not be chasing asset class. I think it's more chasing that operator that has produced 10 to 20% returns consistently over a long period of time. That's a much better bet than maybe some guy that got an outlier and hit a home run once, but you're not sure maybe he's going to strike out next time. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. When it comes to scaling your real estate business, is lack of capital holding you back? Raising private capital on demand can be a major challenge, but you can get the knowledge and tools you need to succeed when you attend Dana Cornell's four-week Raise Capital Masterclass Live. After starting out with no capital or relationships, Dana has raised over $1 billion twice in the past 20 years, and he has made it his mission to share the best of what he's learned with business owners and investors like you. You can learn more at danacornell.com forward slash best ever. Dana's Raise Capital Masterclass Live allows you to immediately unlock and raise capital on demand, drastically increasing your business's growth. If you're ready to take your business to the next level, go to danacornell.com forward slash best ever to enroll today. I'd like to introduce you to my good friends over at passiveinvesting.com, a private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. Passiveinvesting.com makes it easy for you to start investing in real estate. They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities with private accredited investor funds. They also have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to local fix and flippers across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. With a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and controlling over $250 million in equity, they know how to secure the best deals and how to avoid the red flags. If you are interested in learning more, please reach out directly to PassiveInvesting.com and request the free Passive investor guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. The GPs that you've invested in, have they all been recommended to you or have you ever sought out GPs from doing research? A little bit of both. I've invested very rarely with the GP that I talked about that outsized return on. He was recommended. I was looking at some multifamily to buy myself in Phoenix. That broker recommended me to this operator. We had a meeting. We had a long meeting. I pulled the trigger on him because I liked him. I felt like he was really savvy and he was like a do whatever it takes guy, but it was a bit of a gamble. And I knew it was a bit of a gamble, but mostly I've tried to leverage investment groups, other advice from other people. So I've invested with Jeremy Roll, who many of your listeners will know who he is. I've done a number of syndication deals with him. Again, you want to have the voice of experience and the voice of someone who's been there, who knows to look for things. Like when I started out, I didn't know a lot of the intricate things to look for. And most people don't. It's really tough when you first start to really know where all the pitfalls are, or even how the difference of, is this distribution a return of capital that's going to reduce your pref, or is it really just your pref and you're going to keep your same capital account? 
There's so many nuances to this game. So it's really important that you find people that have been in the business for five or 10 years. So I have relied heavily on recommendations. The 506 group is an amazing group of really smart investors who recommend things, but they've had experiences positive or negative, and they're willing to share those. That really speeds up your learning curve. And Brian, if you're active on LinkedIn, you probably get hit up with a lot of deals. Do any of those get your attention enough for you to follow through and potentially invest with them? As a general sense, no. I get text messages from people. Hey, got a brand new deal. Got to invest right now. We got two weeks. And it's sort of off-putting, honestly. Again, I'm looking for that partner that I've even invested with previously. They're doing more deals in the future. Again, they've treated me well in the past. It needs like a serious recommendation because again, even in the best of times that we've had, that we've talked about these last 10 years, there's people that have screwed up deals and have lost investor principal. It's like, how did you mess that up in the best of times? But it happens, right? So it's really important to look at that track record and the due diligence. I'd be more likely if other friends of mine were in that deal, or I know that operator. Again, this is the trouble. It's like everybody, when you're starting up, hey, they're new, but you don't really know what's going to happen when things get tough. So you're taking a real risk if you're going with somebody that you don't have a lot of experience or they don't have a lot of track record. But there's some other groups that are relatively new, but again, they're building great reputations. People are saying, hey, they're delivering. They're doing a great job. You see what they're doing in the marketplace and it's impressive what they're doing. So those, I would say I'm, I'm warming to those. But if I can find an operator that's been in business longer, that has more of a track record, that's less of an uncertainty, then I'll choose that as an option. How intense is your due diligence of that group? It sort of depends. I would say I'm almost depending more on people that have have that 10-year track record with that group. That's more the due diligence because, again... Every performer looks good. Every performer's shiny paper and looks really, you know what I mean? Like you've never seen a bad one that you go, this looks like crap. I'm, I'm definitely not investing in this, right? They all look good. All the numbers look good. And if you've ever t- tweaked a performer, you know that you can achieve the kind of outcome that you want by modifying the assumptions. Right? So you have to look more into the assumptions. If they're saying, well, we're buying it at a four and a half cap, but we're selling it at a four cap, which is meaning that the, the market's going to help you more and exit. That's not a realistic expectation. It might happen, but there's a greater likelihood that it would get worse and you have to plan for the worst. So if you see them making assumptions that are very unlikely to happen, that should be a big red flag because it means one, these aren't conservative underwriting to get to those kind of returns. And two, they probably haven't been around the block and they might be trying to sugarcoat this to make it look like a better deal than it actually is. Yeah. So the lesson here for the GPs out there, use your existing investors to capture additional investors. That's a great takeaway point. Definitely. Yeah. Because well, again, I've invested with deals because a friend of mine, Joe Fang, Hey, I've invested with these guys. They did great for me, blah, blah, blah. I take that recommendation way higher than Again, the shiny brochure or the, hey, we got a new uh, syndication deal. We'd love to get you involved, right? That might be really good, but I've heard enough stories and experienced partners not doing what they're supposed to do or what they promised to do that you really have to vet those deals very, very carefully and realize that 50 grand could go away if you're not careful. So it's like, who are you trusting? Who do you have that kind of level of trust? And I think for the GPs out there, how do you build that kind of trust? What can you do to demonstrate that when the chips are down, you're going to do what it takes, or you're going to be able to willing to step in 
or you're willing to give up part of your side in order to make LPs more whole or get them to the number that you promised them on the Performa. Some guys are willing to do that, but not everybody is. Yeah, Brian, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? It kind of comes back to that Warren Buffett quote, be greedy when others are fearful and be fearful when others are greedy. That kind of was a life-changing thing for me. So I started buying real estate, single family, 2004, 2006. And then I saw the market just go crazy and things didn't make sense to me. I was like, this doesn't make sense. I don't understand. And people are like, well, I'm losing 250 bucks a month, but it's going to double in the next six months. I'm going to make a killing, right? Well, the party came to an end. But during that time, I bought a lot of single family for 25 cents on the dollar. I was buying buildings or not buildings, but units for $33 a square foot. And I knew the build cost was like $100 a square foot. So eventually it would come back to there. So my best ever deal was taking 20 grand, buying a $100,000 house in Phoenix in around 2010. Then 10 years later, it's worth 500,000. So you make $400,000 of profit on a 20 grand investment. So that's like a 20x return. So I did that as many times as I could in that period. And knowing what I know now, I would have done it more. Yeah, we all have that hindsight and we have the luxury of having lived through that time. Do you see any similarities in what's going on today? You definitely see the euphoria. You see the craziness. You see the you can't lose. You see people paying a lot of money for assets. You see people bidding over ask. You see people putting a million dollars hard day one to try to secure a deal. Now, as the market continues to appreciate, those look like really smart decisions. But if you know the term return to the mean, that's going to happen, right? Historically, we don't know when it's going to happen. But if you look at any charts, right, here's the normal. You can be way up here. But over the course of time, you're going to come down to that line, usually below the line, because it doesn't go like this. It's above and below. I'd say we're above the line now. At some point, we will revert. So that's going to happen. And I think there will be pain in that. And again, choosing your operators carefully. A good operator will also keep you from a bad deal. They're going to see more of the pitfalls or what would happen if somebody built the brand new self-storage building right across the street. They're going to have more wisdom and life experience. So they're going to be in a better position to choose that investment. So not only in evaluating that investment, but that operator is going to, this is a great asset. Even if these market condition things happen, this is going to be well positioned because of this. So that good operator is also going to steer you into good deals where other people may be just looking for an opportunity to get in. They may not be thinking through as many of the critical downside. Everybody tends to look at the upside And it's harder to take that discipline to look, what if things didn't go well? What happens if interest rates do go up 2%? What's going to happen then? So it's good to have that foresight of thinking that bad things could happen to be prepared and make the best choices you could. Yeah, a lot of good points in there. And I think from my perspective, if you have an operator that has an exit cap, let's say 100 basis points lower than their entrance cap, that's a red flag. Absolutely. Exit at the same cap rate, or even higher, but don't anticipate cap rate as your savior. You should plan for that. Maybe if you're buying at a four, plan to exit at a five. You don't know where the market's going to be in three to five years or seven years, right? There's a lot of uncertainty. Who would have thought in November that there'd be a war going on in Ukraine right now? It's like uncertainty happens very, very quickly. And it's hard to anticipate that. Right now, it seems like, hey, the sun is out. It's shining. Bye, 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 bye. And With inflation, that may be really good advice, but you have to be prepared for the unexpected to happen. Brian, that self-storage operator, you've got me thinking, did the competitor open right across the street? Yes. 
Man, so that's got to be like on your due diligence list from here on out. If you have a mobile home park or RV park or self-storage, you got to make sure within an eyesight, there's not available land for someone else to do the same thing. And if there is, beat them to the punch. Yeah, that is one of the downsides of self-storage. The entry cost is relatively low because you're using cylinder blocks and some garage doors and you're in business, right? So it's a much lower barrier than to build a multifamily right across the street. Also absorption rates, how many units can the market really support? Where multifamily, if somebody built right, you might be okay. Nice thing with mobile home is it's very unlikely they're going to build a new mobile home because it's very restricted and basically cities are not granting new licenses. So I think there's a better mode of protection around that business than there is the self-storage business. Yeah, I agree. But what a crazy thing to do. Crush your competition by building right across the street. That's not cool. (laughs) Brian, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Let's do it. Brian, what's the best ever book you recently read? The best ever is The Art of Possibility, Benjamin Zander. It's really about thinking and about changing the way you think about outcome and life. It's a terrific book. I highly recommend it. Brian, what's the best ever way you like to give back? A friend of mine moved to the Philippines and started an orphanage about 20 years ago. So I know the money is being well spent, but to give money to kids over there, a kid in a third world country can go to college for a thousand bucks a year. So for four grand, you can send an orphan to school for four grand. So it's a great use of capital. It's a great way to give back. And it's ability to change somebody's life for a very low amount of money. Yeah. Is that Will Crozier? No, oh, no. It's not. Okay. So give that person a shout out, please. What's that? Give that person a shout out. Sure. Lorraine DeJesu was my friend and Faith, Hope and Love Kids Ranch in the Philippines is her organization. And anybody can reach out to me and I can connect to if you'd like to support them. Awesome. And Brian, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? Sure. Great way to reach me is website capitalstackinvestments.com. Capitalstackinvestments.com. Brian E. Miller on LinkedIn. Those are two great ways. And I love to be connected. Also on Capital Stack Investments, there's a resource called Lessons from 50 Deals. Those are just lessons that my partner and I have learned from investing in deals, what went right, what didn't go right, what were our learning lessons. It's a great way to speed up your education as an investor and learn from people who have been doing it. So just go there, sign up. It's free. It's a way we give back and it's worth doing. Brian, thank you again for sharing your time with us, your story, always wanting to be a composer, having the inspiration from your dad who built houses in the summer to supplement his income. You followed his footsteps and have built something incredible. So thank you for sharing your story with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. It was nice to spend time with you and well done. Best ever listeners. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share the podcast with someone you think can benefit from it. Also follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day.